Well, it's great to be with you guys. I'm going to rearrange this. I know the worship band is not coming back up, so, and I broke that, and that's okay. Um, I like to move, so I like a big stage. So, um, like she said in that intro, uh, my wife and I, we've got four kids, and um, I think we got a picture. Yeah, there we go. So, um, we did it, we did it right. They're all two years apart. So it's so easy. So it's like Olivia's eight, Cohen's six, Ivy's four, Alden's two. It's like super easy to remember um, their birthdays and everything. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a picture of them, obviously. So um, funny story. We uh, were in a house before we got into the place we live right now. And we had a, some family come and stay with us. And when they came and stayed, they we set up like a queen air mattress, and it was like a double pillow top. They have these crazy air mattresses now. They, they're, they try to convince you that it's more comfortable than it really is, because it's still an air mattress, so it's still not a very comfortable experience. So we set it up for this uh, family member to come and stay, and they stayed, and then they left. And the, when I was deflating the air mattress, the kids were like bouncing on it and having fun, and it was kind of like a mini blob. Has anybody done a blob like at the lake or something like that? Yeah, they're pretty fun. And um, it's like one kid would be on one end, Another kid would jump on the other end. They would kind of bounce up a little bit. And they're having a ton of fun doing this. And I'm watching them. And me being like an in-the-moment, really thoughtful, safety-first dad, thought, man, I should jump on the air mattress right now while my kids are there. So I did. And I didn't like, you know, like jump and like, you know, like slam on it. I just kind of like fell on it. And I didn't think about like, I'm almost 200 pounds my kids weighed like 40 pounds. And um, so I hit that air mattress, and I like sink down into it. And as I'm sinking into it, I see my daughter. And it's like, seriously, it was slow motion. And all I could think was, God, no. And it's just like, I'm sinking, and she's going up higher and higher. And um, she slammed. And she didn't cry. She was like, that was great. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah. So um, we moved into this new house, and the house had a backyard. And you know what the first thing we bought was? Trampoline. A trampoline. That's exactly right. And now one of my favorite things is going in the backyard with the kids, and, like, I'll just launch them. And it's so satisfying. We're like, you know, I'm, a, I'm tall. I'm 6'4", so I'm, like, I'm, I'm launching them, and they're, like, at eye level. Their whole body. And, you know, they're just, like, swinging and... We have been to the hospital a few times because of the trampoline. Anybody grow up with a trampoline? They're way safer these days, guys. I mean, it's got a net around it. It didn't have a net when I was a kid. It didn't have the pad around it. Tons of fun. Yeah, so that's a little bit of our family. Um, Four kids, lots of fun. Um, This weekend, so we've got USC in the house. Right? Pretty good. Um, San Diego State is in the house. Pretty good. I mean, I don't know, USC, they... They did pretty good right there. I don't know. Um, So both of you guys have big football games this weekend, okay? USC, you guys are playing the Buffaloes. That's right, Coach Prime. I think is the game, is it at 9 o'clock? 9 a.m. So I'm going to be up here watching you guys. So if you're watching your phone, I'm going to call you out, okay? I'm going to call you out. So I know in the games tomorrow. So you guys are playing Coach Prime in Boulder, so it'll be fun. Same elevation we are, I think. SDSU, anybody have any idea who you guys are playing? Air Force, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fun. You guys actually, one of the guys on your team, I think, is the uh, nation's leader in interceptions right now. 
So, hey, there's some talent on the team. It's not terrible. Not terrible. <laughs> not USC. I'll give you that. Not USC, but it's got some talent on the team. So, I'm going to pick on USC for a minute. Um, so, great coach. Oh, sorry about that. Wrong picture. I think we got another picture. There you go. There you go. Now we're up to date. Okay. Lincoln Riley, arguably the best offensive mind in at least college football, possibly in all of football. Caleb Williams, just, you know, other level talent, transcendent talent. Probably going to win the Heisman again, unless something crazy happens. Also, I think you guys have a legitimate shot of making the college football playoff this year. What's interesting, though, if you think about it, with as good as Lincoln Riley is, and as good as Caleb Williams is, if they get all the way through the Pac-12, make it to the college football playoff, and win, if you guys win the national championship and add another trophy, if that happens, what's interesting is, with all the work that they put in, all the contributions that they made, the history books are going to read 2023 college football national champions, the University of Southern California. The history books will not read college football national champions, Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams. It's interesting, as important as they are, ultimately, all the glory goes to the school. And for them, it's a great privilege for them to suit up and to get paid and to have a job and to contribute in order to win. And yeah, there's going to be rewards for them and there will be incentives for them. But ultimately, it's not about them. It's about the university. The university ultimately gets all the glory. And it's interesting, when God calls us to follow him, he makes us a part of his team. The team's called the church. And in our modern day, the church gets picked on a lot. And, you know, people say like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't really like organized religion. And, you know, people say all these things that they, it sounds intellectual and it sounds smart. But really, if we could step back and we could see the church for what it really is, even though it takes a lot of flack and a lot of heat, if we could see it for what it really is, if we could see it kind of with with God's eyes through the spiritual realm, both what God sees and also what Satan sees, we would see the most powerful force in history marching from one victory to the next. One of the things that our church is doing is we're doing a series of messages called The Impact of the Christian Movement. And we can't see all that the, the church has done through history from the spiritual realm. But what we can see is just from the historical record, the good that the church has brought into the world. And if you take the time to study it, I mean, I know that, I know that in pop culture and I know that the, the people who can kind of control the narratives, they spin it as, oh, organized religion is this bad thing. But if you could really step back and you, for yourself, explored the history of what the church has done, I mean, the, the facts are overwhelming on the good that the church has brought in the world. So when you decide to follow Jesus, what God does is he makes you part of his team. And he gives you an important role to play. And what you do matters. And you get to contribute. He actually says to you, he doesn't want you in the stands. He doesn't want you just sitting there cheering and clapping. He calls you onto the field of play and calls you to make a contribution with, his, with your life. And what you do is going to matter. And what you do is going to help him advance. But ultimately, whose team is it? It's God's team. So who gets the glory? God gets the glory. It matters what Lincoln Riley does. It matters what Caleb Williams does. But who gets the glory? USC gets the glory. When it comes to us, when it comes to following God, our lives are about deciding, okay, I'm going to be a part of God's team. I'm going to do everything I can to help advance the mission that he's given. And ultimately, he gets the glory. And that, that is hands down 
the biggest privilege you can ever have in this life. Now, another thing that's interesting about that is when it comes to both USC and San Diego State, you know, USC recruiting, what, four-star, five-star high school players. San Diego State, three-star, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where it's at. You know, maybe some five-stars sprinkled in there. Either way, they're still D1. I mean, you can't take that away from them. They're still D1. They're still putting players. Both schools are putting players in the NFL. Both schools are bringing in players that are the best of the high school ranks. I mean, you have to be, you have to be head and shoulders above everybody else in order to get a D1 football scholarship. They're bringing in the best of the best. You know, it's interesting when it comes to the church and following God, you know what the prerequisite is? Admitting that you're a sinner and you can't undo what you've done. I mean, the prerequisite is, I know you guys are in college, you guys are smart, but the prerequisite to following Jesus is you're not smart enough. You're not. You, there is there's no amount of intellect, no matter how high your IQ is, you cannot solve the problem of human sin. You can't do it. That's a prerequisite to following him. Another prerequisite, not only are you not smart enough, another prerequisite is that you're not good enough. There's no amount of good works that you can do to earn God's approval and God's love. I mean, one sin makes you guilty before him. You know, it's not like, it's not like a balance of, okay, well, okay, so one sin makes me guilty, so if I do like 10 good ones, then I can kind of tip the scales. That's not how it works. You're contaminated. You're infected. It just takes one thing. So you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Because of your sin, the only thing that can save you is Jesus. So that means that God's team is not made up of five-star and four-star and three-star and two-star, the cream of the crop. You know what God's team is made up of? A bunch of nobodies. A bunch of nobodies like me. And the amazing thing is then he turns to these nobodies, not the not the best of the best, not the best minds, not the most impressive, not the people with the best credentials. He turns to a bunch of people that are willing to admit, I'm broken because of sin and I need to be saved. And he says, you know what? I want you to come off of the stands. I don't want you to sit up there just clapping in the crowd. I want you to enter the field of play and I want you to give your life making a meaningful contribution. I want you to do something that matters. I mean, isn't it amazing that he uses a bunch of nobodies like us? That is absolutely the greatest privilege we could ever have in this life. So this weekend, what we're going to be unpacking is we're going to be talking about Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to be um, pulling some principles out of that that can apply to us and help us get an idea of, okay, what does it look like to take the field and start making an impact the way that God wants us to? The theme for this weekend is Jeremiah 29, verse 7. This is what the verse says. It says, work for the good of the cities where I have made you go. And we're changing it a little bit. Instead of saying cities, we're saying campuses. So work for the good of the campus. So what is it going to look like to work for the good of the campus where we live, where you guys reside? What is it going to look like to do that? And as you study the Bible, what you see is this is, this is not something that you just find in one place. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, God repeatedly says to his followers, hey, I want you to have a meaningful impact. I want you to make a contribution. I want you to change what's going on in the places where I've put you, the places where you live, the places where you reside. So we're going to be unpacking that this weekend. Um, Quick context on Jeremiah 29. So Jeremiah 29, um, the whole book of Jeremiah, is written during a low point in Israel's history. So as we kind of unpack this this weekend, I'm going to highlight a couple things from the context 
It'll make sense. It was written in about 575 BC. So this isn't just, you know, some random book that appeared. I mean, this happened at a time and a place in history. We can verify the events that took place. There's a lot of historical evidence all throughout the book. So it happened in about 575 B.C. Something that God had been telling the people, the nation of Israel, is he had been warning them for a long time. He'd been saying, hey, if you guys don't take me seriously, what's going to happen is, is I'm going to bring consequences into your life. If you keep ignoring me, you keep doing your own thing. They were essentially doing what a lot of us do. They were chasing money, sex, and power. So they're chasing those things, they're, they're greedy, they're abusing people, they're oppressing people, they're, they're just after pleasure, they're after feeling good, they're doing this stuff, and God keeps saying, hey, if you guys keep this up, if you keep ignoring me, I'm going to bring consequences. God did exactly what he promised. He said he was going to bring consequences. He brings in Babylon. Babylon is the most evil nation on the face of the earth. They come into Israel, and they conquer Israel. Actually, as you read through the Bible, what you find in the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible... When the angels are describing human evil, they refer to it as Babylon, Babylon the Great. So Babylon, this nation, Nebuchadnezzar is the king at the time, this nation that comes in and conquers Israel, God's people, they are the most evil, ruthless people on the face of the earth at that time. And as the angels are describing human history and human evil, they're saying, hey, Babylon was the worst. So for Israel, this is the absolute worst thing that could happen. They're taken from their homeland. When the Babylonians came in, one of their tactics was they took the royal family, they took the religious elites, they took the wealthy people, they took the educated people. They would take them out of their homeland, and then they would take them to Babylon to live. And one of the reasons they did that is they wanted the people to completely lose their identity, to lose their religion, to start to follow the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian ways and the Babylonian value system. So they take them away. And they leave kind of the working class poor man behind in Israel to take care of the land. So Jeremiah, the guy who um, gets these messages from God and relays them to the people, he's left behind in Israel. What does that say about Jeremiah? He's probably a nobody. So he's left behind in Israel. And then God comes to him and he says, hey, I've got a message. I want you to write it down. And I want you to send a letter through a few other guys. I want you to send this letter to the exiles in Babylon because I've got something important that I want to tell them. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to be pulling some principles out of it. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. He says this, I wrote a letter to the priests, the prophets, the leaders of the people, and to all the others whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away as prisoners from Jerusalem to Babylonia. I wrote it after King Jehoiakim, his mother, the palace officials, the leaders of Judah and of Jerusalem, the engravers and the skilled workers had been taken into exile. So again, that's a Babylonian tactic to take the upper class. I gave the letter to Elisha, I don't know how to say his name, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah was sending to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia. It said, so here's the key part, said, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those people whom he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take away as prisoners from Jerusalem to Babylonia, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what you grow in them. Marry and have children. Let, them, let your children get married so that they also may have children. You must increase in numbers and not decrease. Work for the good of the cities where I have made you go as prisoners. Pray to me on their behalf because if they are prosperous, you will be prosperous too. So he sends this letter. And in this letter, essentially what he's saying is, he's saying, hey, doesn't reference this part, 
they know why they're there. They're there because they rebelled against God. But what he's saying to them is he's saying, hey, yeah, you, you brought this on yourself, but in the midst of the worst thing you could imagine happening, being taken from your homeland, the land that you love, this, I mean, it's interesting. It's a lush Mediterranean climate, kind of like L.A., kind of like San Diego. They're taken to a city that's about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. So you go from this, like, this really beautiful place where you can grow anything. I mean, if you want to grow it, you can grow it, you can eat it. They're taken to this hot desert climate. I mean, just like the middle of nowhere. Does anybody know where, like, Ridgecrest, California is? Anybody know where that is? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, worse, you know? Yeah, a lot worse. Bakersfield really isn't that bad, you know? Bakersfield's kind of nice sometimes, you know? But Ridgecrest, I mean, it's rough. That's kind of where they go. I mean, it's just like this rocky, hot, I mean, to them, absolute worst thing they could imagine happening. I mean, this is like catastrophic. But what does God do? God goes to Jeremiah, says, hey, I want you to write this letter, send it to the exiles. And what does he say to the exiles? In essence, he says, hey, guys, I want you to come off of the stands. I want you to come onto the field of play. And I want you to give your life making an impact right where you are. The most evil place you can imagine. I want you to work for good in this place where I've taken you. So we're going to be unpacking this passage this weekend, and we're going to be pulling some principles from it. But before we get into some of the details, I want to talk about something that you, you need to work through in your heart. God's calling you, he's calling all of us to get off the stands, get into the field of play. There's a question that we need to wrestle with, and it's the question of commitment. The question of commitment. The question is, how committed am I going to be to Jesus and to Jesus's plan? Because if you're, gonna, if you're gonna come off the stands and onto the field of play, what it's gonna require you to decide is, I'm committed to this. I'm willing to go all out. I'm not gonna put it off. I'm not gonna you know, just do it with my spare time. I'm not gonna bring conditions. I'm gonna go all in and commit to this. And there's an interaction between Jesus and three individuals in Luke 9 that I wanna look at. And in Luke 9, at the end of that chapter, Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, all the events of the final week, heading to the cross. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, kind of as he's on that journey, it's an uphill journey, he encounters three individuals that say they want to follow him. And his response to these three individuals is really telling, and it reveals the kind of commitment that's required if you're going to get out of the stands and onto the field of play and start to make an impact. This is the first interaction, Luke 9 Verses 57 and 58, it says this. As they were walking along, so this is Jesus and his disciples, they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. So this guy, you know, it seems like this guy's willing to follow Jesus. He says, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Wherever, whenever, however, I'm all in, Jesus. And you would think that Jesus would respond to this guy and he would say, great, you know, hey, you know, join in, you know, jump in line, let's go. You know, this is where we're headed. But Jesus doesn't say that. Actually, what Jesus does is he, he challenges the guy. And when Jesus responds to somebody, especially when Jesus responds to somebody like this, it's a little shocking to us. It's like, wait, what? Like, you know, Jesus, the guy just said he's all in. But Jesus' response always reveals what's going on in the person's heart. So what Jesus says, is he says, hey, foxes have dens, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Essentially, he's saying, hey, I, I know you say you want to follow me, but I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand what this is going to cost you. You're going to have to sacrifice. 
this is going to be, this is going to require you to pay a high price if you want to commit to me and if you want to follow me. And I don't think you've considered that cost. So before you come and say, hey, I'm all in, I'm going to commit, I'm going to get on the field to play, you need to count the cost. That's what Jesus is saying to him. You've got to count the cost. Same thing that we've got to do. Before we commit and get on the field of play, we have to count the cost. Getting into the game is going to cost you. Just earlier in this passage, there's a verse you might be familiar with, Luke 9.23. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. And when Jesus is saying that to to the people, he's not, you know, he's not just kind of like sounding like, he's not trying to say something that's eloquent and sounds really cool, but there's really nothing behind it. He's actually being literal. He's saying daily. I mean, he chooses that word, daily. Daily, there are going to be things that you encounter where you're going to have to say no to yourself, to your desires, to your wants, to your will, and you're going to have to sacrifice in order to come and follow him. He's saying this is a regular thing. You've got to count the cost. When I was in college, I remember um, one time that really stood out to me. There have been several times where I've really wrestled with this idea of counting the cost. And there was a kind of a series of events in college where, you know, I thought my life was headed in one path, and I kind of had a, a vision of a, of a future that I, that I wanted to achieve, and, you know, it didn't really look like that was going to work out. And the path that I was on, it was kind of veering off in a different direction, and I actually was really, really unhappy with the trajectory that my life was headed in. So I was struggling with what was going on in the moment and kind of the implications for the future. And I was in a class. Um, it was the only film class I took in college. It was a film noir class. Any film students in the room? Okay, cool, yeah. So a couple, good, yeah. So it was a film noir class. We were watching a film called Double Indemnity. It's just a super boring movie. I was not paying attention at all. I'm sitting on the back row, bored out of my mind. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just, really, I'm complaining. I'm like, man, like, I can't believe that it's going this way. You know, I'm, I'm struggling with it. And there was a verse that I had recently memorized. And it was one of those verses that you memorize, and it's like, you memorize it, and you're like, I, I really don't know what this verse is talking about. I know what this has to do with me. And it popped in my head. The verse is uh, Habakkuk. It's in a, you know, obscure. Habakkuk's one of those books that, like, if you were, like, on Jeopardy, and they were like, name a book that's not in the Bible. Somebody might say Habakkuk, but it's really there. But it's one of those books that's only three chapters. People don't really know it's there, but it is there. And it's a really good book. And it says, uh, Jerem- or Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 says this. It's a really depressing beginning. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail and the crops produce no food, though there be no cattle in the stall and the flock should be cut off from the fold. So he just listed all the worst things that could happen. If you're in an agrarian culture, they're farmers at that time. If you're in an agrarian culture, this is the absolute worst thing that could happen. No food, nothing's growing, nothing to eat, no cattle, no way to make money. All the worst things imaginable that could happen. He lists all those things. Then he says this. He says, even if all those things happen, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So I'm sitting there on the back row of this class, completely bored. The, the professor's like pausing it and being like, notice the, notice the shadows from the blinds, and that means that danger's coming. You know, you're just like, what? Like, come on, man. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about, and I'm thinking about that verse, and I realize, okay, you know what? Even if my life doesn't work out the way that I want it to, even if this picture of the future that I have isn't realized, even if this path that I've been really working hard to move down and to realize certain things on this path, even if that's not the path that God has for me, 
even if really hard things lay in my future, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to go all in. I'm willing to sacrifice. I, I didn't know what the future hold. And thankfully, you know, actually, there's been a ton of great things. There's been tons of great blessings that have come from it. It hasn't all just been dour and sour and negative. It's been great. But I had to come to a point sitting there where it was like, okay, even if, even if that's the cost, I'm going to commit. That's the kind of follower Jesus wants. He wants a follower who counts the cost and says, okay, you know what? Even if that's what it's going to take, I don't know all the things it's going to take. I'm not necessarily at the crossroads. But even if that's what it's going to take, I'm going to go all in. Next thing, next interaction Jesus has with a man. It says this, verses 59 and 60, Luke 9. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go, proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this is another interesting one. This guy's different than the person who didn't count the cost. What this guy says is, hey, like, Jesus, I'll follow you. Like, I, I want to get off the stands. I want to get into the game. But first, I need to go bury my father. And you hear that, and that's, that's really reasonable. I mean, it's like, you know, maybe he's on hospice. Maybe he's on his deathbed. Like, yeah, you should probably go home to his funeral and, you know, say your final goodbyes. What's interesting about this statement this man makes, and then it's also revealed in Jesus' response, this is a Hebrew phrase that they would use, and it was a reference to the responsibilities of the son and it was the idea of, I need to be available just in case. Just in case something were to happen. So he's saying to Jesus, it's, it's not that his dad's dying. It's not that his dad's on his deathbed. His dad could have had 30 or 40 more years of good health in front of him. What he was really saying is, hey, hey Jesus, let me go home and fulfill my responsibilities as a son, no matter how long that takes. And once I've kind of taken care of all that stuff, even if it's 30 or 40 years, once I've taken care of all that stuff, well, then, Jesus, well, then, I'll come follow you. And in essence, what Jesus says to the guy, you know, he says, let the dead bury the dead. He's saying, hey, people that are spiritually lifeless, people that haven't been forgiven by me and haven't decided to follow me, let them prioritize things that don't matter. But you, you need to go give your life to something that matters. So he's calling the guy out. He's saying, hey, don't put me off, which is exactly what the guy's doing. He's saying, Jesus is saying, hey, come follow me. The guy's going, oh, great. I'll follow you, Jesus. But it's going to wait until I go and handle all this stuff. And then I'll follow you, Jesus. And, I mean, if you think about us, I mean, this is, you know, this is common. You know, a lot of people are like, okay, I'll follow God. I'll get serious after I get my degree. Or I'll do what God wants me to do in this situation after I, you know, do all the work that it takes to get into my major. Or... Yeah, I'll take God serious and I'll start to do evangelism, you know, once I get married and I'm established and I have a house and a wife and kids and whatever. Or, okay, well, let, let me get my career in order first. Like, once I have my career set and I'm, you know, I'm making good money and I'm kind of stable, I'm established, well, then, then I'll start to make sacrifices and contributions to the kingdom. And it's really just another way of doing what this guy said, which is, I, I really want to follow you, Jesus, but I'm going to put you off. And I'll follow you once I do all the things that I want to do or all the things that I think are important. And once I do that, well, then I'll start to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said, no. Like, if you want to get out of the stands and onto the field, today's the day. Don't put me off. Come follow me. These are uncomfortable interactions. Didn't I say that? The last guy. 
The, follow, the, the next guy, verses 61 and 62, Luke 9, says this. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back, say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, the guy's statement sounds reasonable. He's saying, hey, you know, I'm going to follow you, but let me go say my goodbyes. I mean, it kind of makes sense. You know, before you go off to school, you move away, get established at the university, what do you do? You go around, you say goodbye to your high school friends, you say goodbye to your family, you hug your mom, and then you do those things, and then, and then you go and you go to school. I mean, it, it, this, this sounds so reasonable to us. But again, what Jesus does in his response is he pinpoints the real issue. And what he says to this guy is he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back. So the idea is, is for this guy, it wasn't about going and saying goodbye to his family. For this guy, it was about not wanting to let go of a part of his life that he really liked. He wasn't willing to let go of it in order to follow Jesus. And another, another way of thinking about it is he was putting conditions on Jesus. So he's saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I need to do this. Or, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you, but make sure that doesn't happen to me. Or, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I really don't want to give up this thing that I hold dear in my life. He's bringing his conditions. It's not just outright, okay, Jesus calls me to follow. Yeah, let's do it. Whenever, wherever, however, I'm 100% in. It's, okay, yeah, I'll follow Jesus as long as all these other things happen. And I know for me, I, I, I mean, even, even today, I wrestle with this. These, these three challenges of Jesus when it comes to commitment, these are challenges that over and over in the seasons of life, you will face them. I mean, today, you've got to decide, am I going to get out of the stands and get on the field to play? Am I willing to commit? You've got to decide that. But then guess what tomorrow is going to require? You're going to have to decide again. In five years, what are you going to have to decide? You're going to have to make the same decision. So for me, actually, I, I'm struggling with this. I have... You know, as I've, as I've, you know, moved forward in life, I've taken on more possessions and stuff than I've ever had before. When I was done with school, I had this idea of, you know, I'm going to live out of a suitcase, and I'm going to be minimalistic, and I'm not going to own anything, and, you know, I don't even want, I don't want a credit card. I went without a credit card for a long time. I mean, it was like, I was just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not attached to the things of the world. But then, like, you start to have a wife and kids and a house, and, you know, suddenly it's like, you got all this stuff. And so sometimes it's like, okay, am I willing to follow Jesus if he calls me to go somewhere where the ocean isn't nearby? Well, that's really hard. You know, I like, I love the ocean. You know, it's like, am I willing to follow Jesus if I couldn't surf? Like, am I willing to follow Jesus if we had to sell our house? Like, are these conditions that I'm putting on him where it's like, I'm willing to follow you I'm willing to sacrifice as long as I get to surf, as long as I get to continue this hobby, as long as I get to own a home, as long as whatever it might be. Am I putting conditions on him? I struggle with that. Even today, I struggle with that. So there are times where I just have to go before him, and I have to think through these, and I have to say, okay, you know what? I have counted the cost. I know this is going to cost me. This is going to cost me dearly. So I, I've counted the cost, and I, I don't want to put Jesus off. If he calls me to do it, I want to respond quickly and do it right now. I want him to be my priority. I don't want to say, like, okay, I'll, let me do all these other things, and then I'll follow you. I, I, I don't want to put him off. But I realize, for me, one of the things I struggle with is, is bringing conditions before him and saying, well, I'll follow you, but I really want to do this. 
And so if I'm really going to commit, the kind of follower he's after is a follower who's counted the cost, a follower who doesn't put him off, a follower who doesn't bring their conditions. They just come to him and say, hey, you call me to follow? Okay, I'm ready to go all in. This is something I still struggle with, something you're always going to struggle with. But again and again, you've got to say, you know what? No, I'm going to commit. Because he's calling you out of the stands. You know, people that live in the stands, there's a lot of people that live in the stands. A lot of you are in the stands. People that live in the stands, they live half-fulfilled lives. They only receive a fraction of the joy that God promises. They only receive partial freedom from the stuff that hinders us and trips us up. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, they just live this kind of like, unfulfilling, unsatisfied life. And one of the reasons is is because they're just sitting in the, sand, in the stands and they're not willing to make the commitment and get on the field to play. What God calls all of us to do is he says, hey, step out of the stands, onto the field to play, commit to this. Give your life for his glory. That is the greatest privilege. So as we unpack Jeremiah 29 this weekend... We're going to be looking at more specifics on how to do that. But I want, to, I want to close this with three questions for you. Three questions of where are you? So where are you? You've got to answer the question of commitment. You know where you're at. Have you considered the cost? For some of you, you need to wrestle with, am I willing to pay the price? Have you considered the cost? For some of you, you're trying to put Jesus off. You're saying, okay, yeah, I'll take you seriously, but first, let me get my degree. But first, let me do this. Some of you are putting Jesus off. Some of you have brought your conditions. And you're saying to Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you. I want to commit. I want to go all in. But only if this happens. Or only if that doesn't happen. Or only if I get to hold on to this. So if you're going to commit, wherever you're at, it's going to require you being honest about, hey, I'm coming before Jesus and I'm holding on to these conditions and I just got to let them go. So as we, as we kick off this weekend and spend the rest of our time talking about what a life out of the stands and on the field of play looks like, the first thing you've got to wrestle with is, am I willing to commit? Am I really willing to commit to the kind of life that's required if I'm going to make an impact? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this weekend. I thank you for bringing us up here. I thank you for the time um, to worship and focus our attention on you. And I thank you for the helpfulness of Scripture to clearly paint a picture of what a life on the field of play, lived for your glory, looks like. God, I pray this weekend, I pray whatever the barriers are for us, even for me, I pray for the things that I still struggle with. God, I pray that you would highlight those things and you would help us to bring those things before you so that we can make the all-out commitment that's required if we're going to make an impact. So I pray that you would really allow that to happen this weekend. Pray that you would bless the rest of our time, especially tonight, as we have fun together. In Jesus' name, amen.